1: Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
2: The more I thought about this idea that the one job in the entire American economy that you cannot be fired from is the most important job in the world, that is how we've set this up.
3: Welcome to The Ezra Klein Show. I'm not Ezra Klein. I am, however, Sean Ramos Firm. I am Ezra Klein. There he is. I'm feeling weird about this. (laughs) Come next year, I'll be hosting a brand new Daily News Explainer podcast for Vox. But today, I have the privilege of honoring the regular host of the show, Ezra Klein. Well, thank you for being here as me. I'm super excited about your your coming podcast, but I'm appreciative that you're here today. Uh, Me too. Me too. And it's been a week. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah, news-wise, but I thought we'd focus on this one article you just published titled "The Case for Normalizing Impeachment." That would be great. So, can we just d- define some terms here before we get sure. to the meat of your article? What exactly is impeachment?
2: So. Impeachment in the way people, I think, use the term, because technically you can impeach without removing a president from office, but impeachment in the way people think about it is the process by which a majority of the House of Representatives joined by a two-thirds supermajority of the Senate can remove a president from office. Along with the 25th Amendment, these are the only two ways really we have to legally remove uh, a, a sitting president, so when people see Trump do something outlandish and, and they scream impeach, what they're what they're screaming is this guy should not be president. We 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 need to do something
3: that stops this now, not that waits until the next election. And the actual language in the Constitution refers to high crimes and misdemeanors, which which you write in in your article is a very vague and undefined. Term when it comes down to it, right?
2: Right. So this is something that that impeachment scholars uh, are, are very funny about when you when you interview them, because you begin talking to them, and I talked to a bunch of them for this article and read a bunch of books on impeachment, and they all sort of pretend that they know what this phrase means. But then you'll, you'll press them and you'll press them, and basically they all agree it does not only refer to criminality, not by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have founding fathers on record, in writing, um, in statements at the time talking about things that are clearly not crimes but they believed would be impeachable. So, for instance, Madison talks about a situation in which the president is firing executive branch officials capriciously and says – well, yeah, uh, we, we could impeach him if he did that, but that's clearly not a crime. Right. So high crimes and misdemeanors at that time has a, has a non-criminal meaning. But you get these definitions. Um, Cass Sunstein, who's a law professor at Harvard, recently wrote a book on this. He talks about it as a breach of the public trust. And basically every law professor and expert I talk to ends up somewhere like that. But the problem is, who gets to define what a breach of the public trust is? And here again, you, you, impeachment becomes circular on itself. It's a political process. They did not put impeachment in the Supreme Court. It is not a criminal proceeding. So when you get to this question of who gets to define, the answer is us. We get to define. Um, we as in the, the body politic. Uh, and so... What a high crime and misdemeanor is, is is what we decided to be. That doesn't mean in its intent, right? If you're if you're thinking about this in constitutional intent, it means anything. Um, you know, if you don't like the president jaywalking, I don't think really qualifies as a as a high crime and misdemeanor. But nor is it limited criminality. So it's tough. It's, a, it's an adaptable clause which doesn't have a clear meaning, which is why over time people have drifted towards trying to talk about criminality around it because criminality has a validator of being sort of pre-agreed upon as a high crime of some sort, at least right. if it's enough criminality. And so people have circled criminality because it means they don't have to get into this discussion of you know whether something that's not criminal is really a high crime or misdemeanor. But the problem is criminality is a limited subset of the things you might do that might make you unfit to be president.
3: Right. Like here's an example. Um, Inciting a nuclear war on Twitter. (laughs) Apparently not enough to get you suspended from Twitter, let alone a high crime and a misdemeanor.
2: So this is a good spot maybe for me to back out and talk a little bit about how I got into writing this piece. Yeah. Listeners of this podcast, The Ezra Klein Show... Still,
3: (laughs) sorry. (laughs) I'll back Um, off.
2: We'll have been hearing me talk to different uh, guests for a little while about impeachment, and you you can actually go back and listen to my second conversation with Chris Hayes, and we talk about it there. And you'll notice there I have a different opinion on it than I have now. That's about when I begin thinking about this. It's about when the North Korea tweets get really hot. Yeah, and I became very obsessed with this idea of we have a a, a precedent who could blunder us into a nuclear war. I mean, that is very much a power that the executive, the commander-in-chief of a nuclear global hyperpower has. And so if that leader is clearly acting in a reckless and ill-considered way, what what, what remedy do we have? And instinctually, and and again, you'll hear this in in these early discussions I had about it, instinctually, what I believe or what I believed was ah, impeachment, it's just too profound a remedy. It, it would be too much of a wound on the body politic to, to overturn the results of a democratic election, small-D democratic election, although I guess it wasn't really even that, but a legitimate election, right? Donald Trump won under the rules of the game as they are composed. It, it would cause too much civil unrest. It, you, you couldn't really use it. But I was uncomfortable with that. I mean, the more I thought about this idea that the one job in the entire American economy that you cannot be fired from is the most important job in the world. That is how we've set this up. And ironically, we've set it up around the guy whose whole public persona is based around firing Firing people people, because like that's the way you need to run a a good a good business or institution like that didn't feel right either. And and so I began talking to experts on impeachment, talking to to politicians, talking to the House Democrats who who've introduced impeachment articles against Trump, reading the literature on impeachment And I will say that over time, my mind changed on this. I think that we have become much too afraid of the impeachment power. uh, And that when you really look at him closely, the arguments for that fear do not really hold up. And we have simultaneously become much too complacent about the possible consequences of leaving an unfit president in office. Consequences, by the way, that did not exist nearly in the way they do now Mm -hmm. when the founding fathers set up the impeachment power.
3: Right. I mean— Before we get to the Founding Fathers, I just think it's important to stress that Andrew Johnson was impeached by Congress, but acquitted by the Senate. Mm -hmm. Bill Clinton was impeached by Congress, but acquitted by the Senate. And then there was Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon ended up resigning, so he was never formally impeached either. So this is actually never happened.
2: Mm-hmm. And there's a great line in, in the piece from Gene Healy, who's an, a vice president at the Cato Institute, which is a libertarian think tank in Washington. And he's a longtime critic of executive power. He's written some great books on this. Um, if, if you want to go check them out, you can spell his name H-E-A-L-Y. And it was something he says to me in the, in the piece is that in the entire history of the country and 45 presidents, depending on how you count Nixon, We've impeached either zero or one presidents. Right. There you go. And he says, there is a much better case to be made that that is too few than that is too many. Yeah. I also think, I'll I'll just say this to be honest about it. I I think that my approach to this is a little informed by the fact that I've been running. I mean, I'm not editor-in-chief now. I've stepped down from the position, but I was running an organization for a couple of years. And just the idea after having done that for a bit that— The one position that is not going to be exposed to performance review is the president. It's just when, when in every organization I know of, I I studied tons of management books over the past couple of years because I needed to figure out how to do this. Yeah, and the idea that the wrong person in an important job can cause tremendous damage in in an institution—it's not like. Like, that's one of the good arguments. That that is the only argument. Like, all management books basically boil down to the idea that you need the right people in the right positions. And, you know, we talk all the time about running the US government like a business. That was literally the argument Trump made. He's a businessman, so he would be able to run the government like a business. And if that means nothing else, what it means is accountability for performance. And so that was another piece of this, the more I tried to hold us to what we seem to say and think about how to run institutions, even how to run the U.S. government, the more it just became absurd, this idea that we have a way to remove a president, but we are so terrified of using it because culturally we have decided if we do use it, the consequences will be. The civic consequences will be too much. I, I, I kept circling around this, and at the
3: core of it, there was just something hollow. So what was it that the founding fathers envisioned when they wrote this power into the Constitution?
2: So accountability for, to the first measure. There is a pretty interesting series of debates about impeachment if you go back into the Constitutional Convention. And at some point, there is a version of the impeachment power proposed that enumerates what you can be impeached for. And the ideas were bribery and treason, and someone, that's it. That's it. And someone comes back and says, "Well, that's ridiculous." Um, there's much more, and there's another version that has maladministration, which is much closer to, to the argument I'm making, by the way, about Trump, and that is also, to be fair, rejected. But it's very clear within the the, the debate that happens at the at the convention that high crimes and misdemeanors is chosen as a middle ground between enumeration uh, of of specific crimes or specific offenses and something that is so broad that it would be viable even within the context of you know you just don't like the president's policies right? right maladministration i think can fairly be said to be i don't like the tax plan going through congress right now i think it's a bad tax plan but i don't think it is in, in any way impeachable um and so and that would they, set a really ugly precedent too it, it's an interesting question to be honest there are other countries that run much more like that. I mean, parliamentary systems—you're not going to really have a, a situation, for the most part, where the leader of government is highly is in is from the opposite party of the parties that control the the, the parliament. Um, but even so, in those systems, you do have votes of no confidence. You do have snap elections that get called to to litigate in a. In a, in a more near term way, divisive issues that are that are dividing the government or dividing the country, and so uh, other countries do this. It it isn't that nobody, it isn't that you can't find an example of a developed and well run country where disagreement over the path of government is enough to imperil the government, is enough to create some question about um, you know should we go in that direction or this direction. But that is not the system we have here. We have brought more stability into it. I think that's fine. I'm not. Arguing to change that. So I that that I think is not something one should worry about. But there is this other middle ground that, that, that I do think is very important, which is: can we come up with a standard? Can we think of an approach in which we do not need to overly criminalize or overly medicalize presidential failure? Um, the the Bill Clinton example is actually a good one here because I'm actually of the opinion that Clinton should have resigned over Lewinsky. Um, I've talked about that on, on the podcast before. Right. Matt Iglesias wrote a very good piece about this recently. But when the impeachment proceedings go forward, because impeachment is so is thought of so legalistically, that if you assume that what Republicans are really upset about was Clinton's actual behavior around Lewinsky, and you know if you're going to be very generous, you know other sexual allegations that are flying around him. They nevertheless try to impeach him based on a pretty trumped up charge of perjury,
3: right? Obstruction and, of justice, perjury.
2: Yeah, exactly. And it's pretty clear when you go back and look at that 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 doesn't fit. In fact, they're punished electorally for it. The country is having polls against impeachment. They do vote to move it up to the Senate, but it you know it, it never goes anywhere in the Senate. And so, I- in a pretty profound way, I think you see there that you don't want to do this for too little, but on the other hand, you don't want to have a situation. Where there is no level of unfitness, no level of poor uh, capacity that would merit impeachment, right? You have to be able to have some place where you can go, if the person you've put in the job, you've just made a terrible hiring mistake. They get made all the time. Again, that's part of, you know, my my thinking about this. Like, of course we're going to make hiring mistakes. Every institution makes hiring mistakes. You need to be able to do something about them. You need some mechanism for them. And what I really look at Trump as is a hiring mistake, um, I think that there was a case. Uh, I can understand the case for electing him. and I know a lot of people who looked at him and said, guy's a businessman, run a multi-billion dollar company. You know, he'll come in, he'll he'll act pragmatically, he'll you run things like a business. Because uh, we have so many
3: historical examples of that working.
2: <laughs> right, sure. Many Republicans believe that. I talk to Republicans in Congress about this fairly frequently, and many of them at this point, if you look at Bob Corker or Jeff Flake or in different ways, John McCain, are on record about this. They don't think he's fit to be president. They, they say that all the time. I mean, Corcoran said that he's treating the thing like a reality show, These he's put us on the path to World War III, that the White House has become an adult daycare center. Right. And he said the rest of the Senate agrees with him. If you look at polling, a majority of the American people think Donald Trump is not fit to be president. Uh, if you listen to his own staff, I mean, there's reporting about how his staff has formed what they call the Committee to Save America, to stop him from doing dumb things, how Generals Kelly and, and Mattis made a decision, made a pact that one of them would always be in the U.S. at all times to make sure Trump didn't do something stupid when they were both somehow on a trip at the same time. So you, they can't even take a vacation because they're afraid of him. I mean, you listen to this stuff and it is wild and you watch what he is doing and what he is saying. I mean, we're talking at a time. Donald Trump has begun denying that the Access Hollywood tape where he is shown on tape and heard on tape is him. And it's like unclear at some level, is he lying to us? Is he lying to himself somehow? Which one of those would even be scarier? I mean, we, we've heard this guy at this point say that he's he's really sad. He can't direct the Justice Department to prosecute his political enemies. This is not OK behavior. Nobody thinks it's OK behavior. And yet somehow, even though we know this is not OK behavior, and even though replacing Donald Trump would not mean he's replaced with Hillary Clinton, but with Mike Pence, who Republicans in Congress like a lot more than they like Donald Trump, It's still unthinkable to even talk about. And and that's what I want to try to push on here, this idea that it is such an abnormal thing that that you can't talk about. What I'm trying to do here is not just make a case for impeaching Trump. In some ways, I think Trump is the one making that case, but making a case that there is some minimum standard of performance beneath which the president should no longer be the president, that you should be fired for for doing a very bad job at the job of president, and that the impeachment power is a reasonable and usable remedy to that end. I want to normalize the impeachment power.
3: Sure. I think something standing in your way or in the way of anyone who wants to have a serious conversation about impeachment is that you have this laundry list of, you know, unimaginable scandals relating to foreign policy, relating to domestic policy, relating to the way he carries himself on social media. It's just there's so many things. Whereas when you think of Clinton, we think of one thing. We Mm -hmm. think of a sex scandal that spun wildly out of control. And I think that might be the thing in the way of a legitimate case for impeachment here, because you can't just say, like, look at this mess, let's impeach, right? That doesn't seem to be how it's how it's designed. But that is how it's been
2: done, to be fair, in the past. Um, so obviously we have the impeachment power not just for, for presidents but for, for other federal officials, including judges. And, and when you look at the judges who have been impeached, you often, you often have a laundry list of charges against them. And by the way, the first federal official ever impeached is a judge named uh, Pickering. And he is impeached not for criminality, really. He has, we think now, probably early-stage dementia. He's an alcoholic. He rants and raises people from the bench. He just does not behave in a manner fit for a judge. Uh, and he is impeached. That is the first person we use the impeachment power in the way it is constructed to remove a federal official from the bench. If you go back to Johnson, he has a laundry list of charges against him. One of them, by the way, and I'm going to get the the way they phrased this uh, wrong from memory, but is actually just bringing dishonor on Congress. Hmm. They, they talk about him. One of the charges against Johnson is just the way he's talking, the things he's doing. He's making Congress look bad. And so it isn't the case that you can't bring a, a bevy of charges against folks. I mean, even Nixon, if I remember correctly, there are a lot of charges there. I mean, they primarily revolve around Watergate, but, but there are a number of them. What I do think you're right about here is a weird thing that has sustained Trump is that there is so much swirling around him uh, that, that, that there's not time to focus on any one thing. Do you remember there's an old Simpsons episode where they give Montgomery Burns a checkup? And the doctor is like, well, you know, imagine you have all these gremlins going through a door. And there's so many of them. And he has these little like puppets that they're all squeezed at the door together. Like none of them can get through because there's so many illnesses trying to kill you simultaneously because you're so old. And Burns sort of laughs and says, great, I'm invincible. <laughs> um, Trump has a little bit of that quality to him. I'm not the one who came up with this metaphor, but back during the campaign, some someone said that, the thing about Trump is that it's like a bed of nails, right? All of his different scandals. If it were just one nail, like it would be piercing. Right. But because it's a new thing every day, he sort of like is able to somehow lie on top of them without without being hurt. Whereas Clinton, uh, and there's this famous word cloud from Gallup of what people knew about the two candidates. Like Clinton, like the only word they heard was emails, right? She had the one nail. Right. And so I do think that Trump has been helped uh, by the fact that he keeps – Doing something else outrageous, that we all move on from the last outrage pretty quickly, and so there's a a general sense of things going badly. He's a very unpopular president, but there's not really the focus on one thing going badly that there otherwise would be. Now, obviously, the exception this is Mueller, the former FBI director who's running the special investigation into Trump. We should talk about that, and I want to note that that's a serious threat to his presidency. But but one of my arguments in this piece, something I believe, is that if Mueller does not find evidence of criminal action uh, on trump's behalf that does not take away the argument that Trump should be removed from office. To me, the, the most persuasive reason Trump should not be president is that he's a very dangerous man to have president. Um, we can go back to the North Korea tweets and talk more about why that is. Sure. But this is what I mean by the over-criminalization of, of impeachment. There's so much pressure on the Mueller investigation, so much hope among Trump's critics, that, and even some of his putative friends that it will find something that would allow a switch to be made, that I think we should ask ourselves a question of like— it, is is using this sort of other route, it's fine if it works, but if it doesn't work, are we really saying that because we didn't also have criminality on Trump's part, the fact that he's a dangerously unfit president is just fine?
0: Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience— Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
3: Do you think there's something he could do with that investigation, like like firing Robert Mueller, that would actually... And raise the spear of impeachment. Yeah, I mean,
2: to be fair, congressional Republicans have said, including Lindsey Graham and others, that, you know, if he fires Robert Mueller, they've not literally said we will impeach you. But there's been a kind of, well, there will be consequences kind of thing. And I actually spoke. This is an interesting conversation I had with Representative Brad Sherman, who is a Democrat, a House Democrat, who has introduced impeachment articles into the Congress. And he said that Trump is operating currently under the threat of impeachment. He said, look, imagine there was no threat of impeachment. Mueller would have been fired already. Mm. So he said, one thing to realize is that impeachment is currently constraining Trump. He might not be as constrained as as some people wish, but but the threat of impeachment is currently constraining Trump. And that got me thinking also a bit, well, maybe it would be good for presidents to be yet more constrained by the threat of impeachment than they currently are. So what
3: did he do, let's just say, in the past fortnight while living under this threat of impeachment? He... He once again threatened war with uh, North Korea. Uh, he, he He's all of a sudden started saying that the Access Hollywood tape isn't him. Apparently he's speaking to his aides about President Obama not being born in this country again, uh, retweeting videos supposedly of, of Muslims inciting chaos in the streets like that's how he acts when he thinks that he could get impeached that's a very scary thought
2: and this to me is uh, an important piece of all this that the argument for trump's impeachment is really 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 not a partisan argument and and here's how i think you know i believe and virtually every liberal i know believes that mike pence would be a much more effective conservative president than donald trump He would be much better at passing a tax plan, at repealing Obamacare. He'd be likelier to be reelected. He'd be a more effective public spokesperson for the Republican Party. He'd have a better relationship with congressional Republicans. He'd run a more capable White House. Um, Democrats would be in more trouble with Mike Pence. So the, virtually all of them that I know believe this uh, than, than, than with Donald Trump. And Mike Pence is a conservative. He's more conservative than Trump on virtually anything that I can think of, particularly on social issues. Right, Trump... The the argument for him not being there anymore is around the things that you're saying. He is conspiratorial. I cannot honestly tell if he's a liar or unbelievably self-deluded. I I really don't know the answer to that. And and it actually scares me because in some ways I think self-deluded is scarier than liar. If Donald Trump has a very clear sense of reality, but he just says a lot of things that are very cynical, meant to distort it um, for others— that's actually better, in my view, than if Donald Trump believes he won the popular vote. If Donald Trump has somehow persuaded himself that it is not him talking, not only is it him talking, but he has already admitted it is him talking. I've talked to a lot of people who've briefed Donald Trump, and it's a harrowing experience. Um, talking they, to they, them
3: or them talking to him? Well, all
2: of it, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but the thing that is always described is someone who does not have the attention span to sit through a 30-minute briefing on anything, yes. really. That he is, you know, you begin talking to him and within minutes he's just sort of free associating off somewhere else. There are all these reports about how when you need him to read a briefing book, you need to like sprinkle in praise of him. You need to uh, – there's a period of time when foreign policy briefings were including a lot of talk about how big his electoral college win is. This is not an okay – Character for the president to have, it's not. It's not safe. Um, it's not safe for the country. And and also, I do think it's a bad precedent. I think we should have some precedent that we will hold the president to. I don't know the, the same standard of behavior that we hold a grocery store cashier to, right? right. Or I mean, I always said this. I've said or, this before. Or Rose
3: McGowan on Twitter. I would be who's fi- been suspended. I would be
2: fired for acting the way Trump does. Correctly, sure. I would have fired somebody for acting the way Trump does. Uh, correctly. This is not about Trump's ideology. It is not. And, and, and I really want to be careful and, and, and clear when saying this. I disagree with where Republicans are going on health care. I disagree with what they're doing on taxes. None of that, in my view, is even remotely impeachable. That is, that is an election. That is a disagreement. That is the way American politics works. We should have those. But we also need someone in the presidency, in the Oval Office, who we trust to take a late-night call about a crisis in North Korea— Without reacting completely crazily. We need somebody who does not tweet that, <laughs> that I would never call Kim Jong-un, Lil Rocket Man, short and fat, even though obviously he's short and fat, that I will destroy North Korea, that my own administration should not be trying to negotiate because you know we'll just figure it out and and, and bomb them. This is not stable. Um we should have a fundamental level of of mental stability in the president of the United States. And That should be an okay thing to enforce. We should be able to say that uh, as as a country without it seeming like some kind of
3: national crisis. And and yet, an interesting thing here is that with everything you've mentioned thus far in mind, the Democratic leadership isn't even really calling for impeachment. No, they're not at all. You've got Brad Sherman in Los Angeles, who made a case after Trump fired James Comey. What else is happening? There's no movement on this. Why is that? This, this, again, is why I am making an argument that is not just about
2: Trump, but is about the way we think of impeachment and about the American political system. I mean, they may be making a, a clear and rational and even correct calculation that impeachment is not a political winner, right? That that might be totally true. So Democrats have incentives here, as do Republicans, that are not simply the good of the country. It's their own electoral fortune. But when I began talking to top Democrats and impeachment experts, what I found was that there's a cultural blockage here too, that people are not even comfortable thinking about this. It's too much. It's it's not what we do. I mean, Brad Sherman has a very, very thoughtful line in in, in the piece where he says— the legal theorist will tell you this is a political question. Well, I'm a politician. And I'm here to tell you it's a legal question. Mm. And his point is that the American people will not accept impeachment that is not coming from criminality. Representative Zoe Lofgren, who, who's introduced a 25th Amendment bill, what she wants to just have is a president psychiatrically evaluated or medically evaluated. So we're in this place where I ask both of them. You know, what if he's not a criminal? What if he's not mentally incompetent? What if he's just the guy we thought he was, but he shouldn't be president? He's just not a person who should run a nuclear hyperpower. And they both said, well, if that's all it is, then you're stuck with it. And and that's the idea that I am trying to change here. This is not just about Trump. We might muddle through the Trump presidency just fine. But— It is incredibly optimistic to think that in the long history of this country, we will not see more presidents, other presidents who just should not be president. And the idea that we have set up a a conversation, set up the norms of a conversation where people are afraid, even after saying this guy is going to start World War III, to even suggest he should just be replaced with another person who will not do that but believes otherwise the same set of things and comes from the same political party, that to me – suggests something has gone wrong here, that we've become too afraid of the impeachment power and too complacent about the, the consequences of leaving an unfit president in office. So this is, I, I do think, an important point. Like, this is not just about Donald Trump. This is about how do we view accountability for the president? How do we view impeachment in the American political system? And, and the argument I'm making is that we have come to view it as, as too sacrosanct, as too dangerous, as this kind of breaking case of emergency, but we never break it. And one, I think this is an emergency, but two, I think that we need to be willing to say some things are emergencies and at least have a conversation about what those really are. You know, the, the thing you'll often hear from Democrats, but what I often heard from Democrats, is that if Trump were impeached, if even if they got power back in impeachment just for being a bad president, even if you put aside the question of would there be political backlash or what would happen, that it would make the impeachment power to – usable in American life. There's this fear that if you used it for something less than Watergate, that all of a sudden we'd be impeaching presidents left and right. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a really weird idea, actually. One, it's very hard to get a two-thirds Senate majority for anything. Right. So the idea that that's going to be some simple thing done routinely is, is very unlikely. But two there is just this weird idea that it would be some kind of unbelievably damaging, dangerous thing for presidents to live under the threat of, if they are extremely bad at their job and turn the country overwhelmingly against them, for them to live under the threat of real-time accountability. And I just have a lot of trouble coming up with why that would be. Um, It's not how we run other important jobs. Uh It's not what we believe about other things. But as is often the case in politics, we have a status quo around something and we begin to assume that it's a it's an important principle that it's a guiding light that it that is well founded but in this case i don't think there's really any evidence that it is well founded
3: so let's just say in some bizarro alternate reality there was some kind of movement to impeach could there be even greater political turmoil as a result so this
2: i think is the best argument against it and and it's very much why when i began thinking about this i was against impeachment I, I think you could very much imagine um, you know an impeachment happening and, and as bitterly divided as we are now, it would be more so and, and and imagine it even in a more bizarre world, right? Imagine Republicans wake up tomorrow and do what should be done, which is Republicans look at this situation and join with Democrats and say, this is ridiculous right like we're, we're not we're not going to countenance this anymore. In a funny way, if Democrats impeach Trump, there's a sense of well, you know, Democrats, Republicans, like if he lost enough power that they could do that, I almost think people could accept that. But Republicans, it'd almost be like an, an elite coup, um, which which people I think would have a lot of trouble absorbing. And I do think this is a very real concern. We have real political divisions. And, you know, I've heard serious political scientists worry about things like civil unrest or, or sort of modern forms of even civil wars in America. I think the reason I ultimately came down not finding that persuasive enough that it should at least block discussion of this is two things. One, I think that's partially a cultural issue. So it is the fact that we never impeach anybody, the fact that we never, you know, say, this person's a bad president, let's replace him with the other person we elected right next to them who believes all the same things. (laughs) I think the fact that we don't do that is why it seems like such a big deal. And the idea that because we don't do it, we can never do it, that just doesn't make sense to me. The other is that the... Dangers and honestly, the death toll, like mm. the, the just flatly the death toll of what might happen if Trump remains in office, just seems to me more real and more profound right. than a world where Republicans and Democrats or whoever wake up and say, We're going to replace Donald Trump with Mike Pence because this guy's acting like a lunatic. Um, it might be that people are very upset, but I think, in much the same way that liberals and Democrats and others have like figured out how to live with Donald Trump as president. I think Trumpians would figure out how to live with Donald Trump as not president and it would be bad, right? But I think we are in a world here of bad options and I fear the consequences of nuclear war with North Korea more than I fear the consequences of removing Donald Trump because Donald Trump is acting erratically and acting dangerously and acting unstably And replacing him with
3: Pence. An aspect of this impeachment conversation that I'm constantly surprised isn't given more weight is the fact that Donald Trump has several pending accusations of sexual assault, sexual harassment against him. And that is the most recent example we have of a successful impeachment with Bill Clinton. And Bill Clinton serves as this super important precedent um, with Donald Trump's sexual uh, assault allegations because Bill Clinton's sexual assault allegations, often forgotten, uh, went to the Supreme Court in in a case called Clinton v. Jones that was decided unanimously in 1997 that you can bring charges against a sitting president for actions that took place before his presidency. And in the case of Donald Trump, we have a former apprentice Contestant named Summer Zervos who has said that that Trump assaulted her when she was a contestant on the show, and she's represented by Gloria Allred, and they've subpoenaed the president while he's been in the White House um, on those uh, on those charges. Of course, there is this sort of impunity he has. He's calling out Al Franken and yet not addressing, and that amazing the charges against him. But that seems to me the one active impeachable offense that isn't being discussed or taken very seriously even during this movement that we're having right now this sort of reckoning
2: i'd go further than that i, I don't think it's just the the lawsuit the dev, which you mentioned the defamation lawsuit from summer zervos um, who's a former apprentice star and and by the way you read that lawsuit and and, and i have it is precise in how much it mirrors what harvey weinstein did I mean, the same thing, you know, Donald Trump talking about how he could advance her career, inviting her back to his hotel room where she was brought there by his security, you know, him closing the door. Like, it's the same, the kind of move from bullying to depressive to bullying. Mm -hmm. It's so precise. Donald Trump has, um, the last count I have seen, 17 roughly allegations of sexual assault against him. They are very, very similar to each other. They're very similar, uh, again, to the ones made against Weinstein. There are more of them and they are at least as credible as the allegations that have now brought down a number of other prominent players in in, in media and politics. John Conyers um, has fewer uh, assault allegations but he is being called upon to step down by Nancy Pelosi and it's right. possible by the time we have this conversation he will step down. Obviously Matt Lauer is no longer host of the Today Show. Weinstein is, is, is out of public life, is out of Hollywood. Russell D- D- Simmons stepped away from his Russell Simmons today. stepped down. Um, you know the list of this could go on. Charlie Rose of course. The Allegations against Trump in many cases are more serious, uh, accuse him of of acts that are more violent or more grotesque. Mm -hmm. They are in most cases more numerous. There are very few of these men who have um, 17 allegations against them, although Harvey Weinstein has many more than that. And so, yes, uh, even putting aside the question of impeachment, putting aside the question of of a lawsuit, we are operating under a standard, and it's a standard Republicans at this point are very comfortable with. Again, they are calling, including Trump, for Al Franken to, to step down, that When you have this level of evidence arrayed against you of mistreatment and abuse of women, that you should step down, that you should not be able to be in in public life. And I want to note, one unusual thing about Donald Trump compared to a lot of these other men is he has admitted to the behavior on tape. I mean, again, now he has suddenly, I think, realized the bind he's in and began saying, I'm not sure if that me on the tape (laughs) speaking— By me, that I admitted was me is actually me. Um, you know, that I might have been a little bit hasty in that judgment in the past, but clearly it's him. So the, the evidence on Trump is unbelievably overwhelming. I wrote a, a piece on this with, with a colleague here, Anna North. And the question we we're trying to ask is why has the outcome with, with Trump and Weinstein been so different? And there are a lot of reasons. But one I do think is we have a weird tendency in American life to look at elections as some kind of absolution mechanism. That if charges are brought against you, if allegations of, of immoral conduct are brought against you, but you win anyway, well, the American people spoke and and, and what can you do? I mean, right. and obviously Trump in this case won while losing the popular vote by, by quite a bit. So in terms of public opinion, he certainly didn't win. But that is not true. Like, that's not how things work. That's not how you judge right and wrong. That's not how you judge legal and illegal. Um, it'll be interesting to see where, where this court case goes, but- there's basically no one in, in public life, no Republican I know of, who denies that the charges against Trump are true. Trump is the only one at this point suggesting that they're not true. And Republicans are now on record, as are Democrats, on saying that this kind of behavior should force you out of important public jobs. That, that is an appropriate remedy for this. And here again, impeachment would be a perfectly usable way to do that. And it would revert to power going not to Hillary Clinton, but to Mike Pence. Right. So yes, there are many reasons Donald Trump should not be our president, but 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 this is very much one of them. And there's never been a good explanation for why why people are just moving on from it.
3: Is is part of the problem that we don't seem to have a real consistent ideology on, on what men in positions of extreme power should have to do if accused of sexual harassment? I mean, Nancy Pelosi defended John Conyers until she didn't. Right. Yes,
2: although she appears to have been even during that period working to get him to step down from judiciary behind the scenes. So it, her case is a little bit complicated. What I do think is true, and this is something we talk about in the piece, is that the president affects so many different things um, and has so much power that the reason people are tied to him uh, is quite vast. And so we are, we are still not at the point where Republicans have looked at him and said, it would be better for us, safer for us, beneficial for us, for, for him to step down. They want to get tax reform through. They want to do all these other things. They're worried about how they'll perform in the midterm elections. If he is impeached, it'll make them look bad because obviously he's a president of their party. And that would be an admission that, that he was an unfit president of that party. Uh, whether you think that's a lack of political imagination or not, that, that that's where they're operating. And so— One piece of what you're talking about is an ideology is is also to be be honest about it in a kind of grim way and certainly earlier in this process is a cost-benefit analysis that people run about whether or not they're going to protect people in their industry, people who are their business partners. Harvey Weinstein had been weakening in his power for a long time by the time that the allegations against him, which had been present but – Apparently not um, confirmed on the record in in reports uh, before they were able to be brought out into the open and he was able to be taken down over them. Um, And there are other cases like this, too. I think if you look at a lot of these players who are, are going down, many of them are more in the twilight of their careers. Now, I think as this has gained steam it has become more powerful. So I think Matt Lauer is an example of somebody being taken down who does not look to be in the twilight of his career. You know, some of this is about how much people feel the need to try to enter into protection racket. And Republicans feel the need to protect Trump because they believe it is protecting themselves. A sort of healthy thing about the Me Too moment so far has been that it has overwhelmed and engulfed people on both sides of the aisle But around Trump, because Trump is himself so polarizing, because there's so much going on there in other policy areas, it just becomes a, you know, red versus blue kind of situation.
3: When we talk about Trump now saying that it wasn't actually him in the Access Hollywood tape, that's not his voice, obviously questions of his mental capacity to be the president arise. And that brings us to the 25th Amendment, which was adopted in 1967, and, and sort of seems to have only been considered and used in t- in terms of physical capacity to serve as president, but could be viewed through the lens of, of mental capacity to serve as president, right?
2: Absolutely. And and, and so the 25th Amendment comes out of a history of situations where the president had fallen ill or worse. Woodrow Wilson, for instance, had a stroke and right. incredibly the end of his presidency was more or less carried out by his wife. Dwight Eisenhower went under, you know, some pretty pretty significant surgeries, going all the way up, of course, to to John F. Kennedy and the assassination. And we realized that particularly in a situation where the president was going to be incapacitated for an extended period of time, say a coma, how do you sort of smoothly transition power in that period? And and the 25th Amendment allows for the vice president and a majority of the cabinet to vote um, and basically transition power now the president by the way can contest the 25th amendment and in that case you need a two-thirds majority across the congress and so that is a hard thing to execute against a president's will but but it is there as an option and and it clearly does have a have a background around health i have a couple issues with the 25th amendment in this context Mm -hmm. i have heard a lot of talk about whether or not donald trump is suffering from dementia Um, or some other kind of mental deterioration, you'll see people running sort of analyses of his linguistic patterns and saying, well, he spoke in much more fully formed sentences 10 years ago than he does now. And, you know, I had Evan Austinus on this show and and Evan said that he thought there was something there and and he looked into it. He wrote a great piece for The New Yorker on the 25th Amendment. I think the, the disagreement I have here is that there is no behavioral pattern that I see Trump exhibiting that was not also clear during the election. Right. That I think the American people did look at his behavior, the way he spoke, the kind of erratic jumping from topic to topic, the conspiratorial dimension of him, the the very flagrant lying. I mean, I think here about him repeatedly suggesting that Ted Cruz's father was involved in the assassination of John F. Kennedy because there was a picture where a guy who looked kind of like Ted Cruz's dad maybe was standing next to Lee Harvey Oswald. It was such a crazy situation. I mean, it's honestly one of the craziest things I've ever heard somebody say in American politics. Uh, But Trump said it, and not only said it, said it repeatedly. The day after he won, uh, accepted the Republican nomination at the convention, he literally gave a press conference the next day where he brought this back up for no reason at all, just to pound on Ted Cruz. So I do not think that there is a reason to believe that donald trump is exhibiting mental patterns substantially different from what he was exhibiting during the campaign such that one should say well you know he's now mentally unfit so i I do want to say though so ross doubt that from from the new york times he had made an argument for using the 25th amendment some time ago uh and and i talked to him for this piece and he does make i think an interesting argument here i think it applies basically equally to impeachment and the 25th amendment but ross's argument is that The reason the founding fathers and then subsequently other generations of Americans, like with the 25th Amendment, set up these mechanisms was they had a certain amount of mistrust that elections, particularly popular elections, which Mm -hmm. in this case we didn't even have that exactly, but, but that elections would always produce the right. Candidates. They were very certain that you could get demagogues and knaves and people of ill character who could win an election. They had a real mistrust of the popular will. And so they created these mechanisms by which political elites could overturn the popular will, could step in to safeguard their public. The Electoral College is a mechanism like that. Um, Impeachment is a mechanism like that. Much later, you can argue the 25th Amendment, whatever it was intended for, is a mechanism like that. And what Ross would say and did say is that the fact that there might be backlash is not relevant. That that's the point of being an elite, that that they're there as a safeguard. You have to do that when there is going to be backlash. The point of being an elite is not that you give blind quotes to Politico. It's that when the country (laughs) needs you, you step the fuck up. And I I think there's a lot to be said for that. Um, I think that we have gotten into a weird situation where we are— you know, it's funny, we simultaneously have this incredible cultural emphasis on small-D democracy, but also our presidential elections are in no way democratic. Since 2000, fully 40% of our presidential elections have been won by the loser of the popular vote. Right, And we also do not trust leads to in any way step in, right? The idea that at the end of the election, the electoral college would jump in and say, actually, no, um, is unthinkable. Right. It's unthinkable to me, too. And so here we have an electoral system that is not actually – for president, that is not being run based on the popular will, at least not routinely, that is also not checked by political elites. So, I mean, that's – whatever that is, it is not what the founders set up. That was not their theory of the case. And so I, I do think we need to, to do some soul searching. I can imagine a system where you said, "You know, we don't trust political elites. What we trust is is the popular will. So let's have popular vote, you know, and then maybe there's some some kind of ability to call a snap election or whatever, uh, so it can be can be looked at again. Or you know, you can have one with elites. But we seem to have entered into a system that that doesn't make a lot of sense. And in a system that doesn't make a lot of sense, and then I think it actually becomes more incumbent, not less incumbent, to use the mechanisms of accountability." To, to take them seriously, to see them as a real option. Because, look, if you can win elections routinely while losing the popular vote because the way states have been settled over time has created weird magnifications of power and we've urbanized in a different way than anybody expected when the, when the country was founded, and also we have nuclear weapons, so that's a very different set of consequences. Well, when, when you've got all that, at some point you gotta say, okay, like let's think about this and what opportunities do we have to right the ship if things really go wrong?
3: Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So if it's not going to come from the 25th Amendment, it's it, impeachment is sort of the only nuclear option we have, do you think it would take a, a real downturn in the American economy before people started even thinking about it, seriously? Because, I do not
2: think impeachment is a likely thing.
3: Right. It feels like, it, to so many people, it's just beyond the pale. Right. And I wonder... Considering that, if if all these conversations we have in The New Yorker, at Vox, in The New York Times about impeachment just to you know the people outside of those who consume that media sounds like a bunch of liberals like in a corner being like, we, we don't like how the election turned out. I'm sure out. it does. I've definitely
2: gotten a bunch of um, – I, I got an email today from somebody saying – Oh, you keep crying your liberal tears. It right? tastes so good.
3: But only thirty percent of the country or so approves of the job this president's doing, and yet impeachment still feels like this impossible option. Why is so that? So I have a
2: couple thoughts on this. One is that a constraint I put on myself when I began writing this piece was I was not going to write a piece. I, I just I swore this to myself about whether impeachment would happen. Uh-huh. I'm not. That is not the question I'm trying to answer. I I think a real mistake in political journalism is being always constrained by what seems possible in Congress in the next six months. I think it's a mistake when we're thinking about policy, a mistake when we're Mm. thinking about politics. I think, by the way, it led to a lot of people underestimating the possibility of Trump, including me, getting elected in the first place. None of us are that good at prognosticating, um, you know, coming political reality. But also, there are often things that are true that are just not that pragmatic at the moment. I agree with you. Uh, Talking about impeachment, in part because talking about impeachment is so unusual in American life— It sounds ridiculous to people who are coming to a cold if they don't already believe it, and that's not a reason not to do it. I mean, I think a lot about how this era will be looked back on, Mm. and I imagine historians looking back if the worst happens and Donald Trump does blunder us into a nuclear war with North Korea and two million people are dead in the aftermath of it. And I do think about historians looking back and looking at his little rocket man tweets and the insane way he ran his administration and his clear erraticism and what everybody was saying about him and, and, and saying and asking, what the hell was wrong with you? Right? How did you let this go on? I mean, read what he was writing every day, what you were saying about him, what Republicans were saying about him. Read the Flake speech. Read what Corker said. How did you let this go on until there was this disaster? And I, I ask myself, I really, like, what are we going to say? What is our defense of ourselves going to be? And I don't, <laughs> at least in my writing, I do not want it to be the case that, you know, it was like, well, I knew this was all really bad, but I thought that people outside the beltway would think it was weird if I talked about impeachment, even though this guy was clearly unfit to be president. I don't think the work of the journalist is just to write about what is possible right now or what is likely or... What is, like, a politically good idea? I think sometimes, I think a lot of the time, your work is to describe reality correctly. And I think the correct description of reality is that this is a crazy thing that is happening. I think it is a thing that is so wild that when we step out of it, when we are finally out of it, we will not believe it. I think that when the histories of this period are written, they will not read plausible. Mm. Um, the The... Donald Trump saying that <laughs> it's not him on the tape where it's clearly him. Just the the, the the tweets, the way he talks, the things that he says, the things that his own stuff says about him. Daniel Dresner, who, who's a political scientist who writes for the Washington Post, has this long, long, long running tweet thread where he says, I'll, I'll take Trump more seriously when his own staff stops talking about him like he's a preschooler well, with these constant quotes from his own staff. This is not OK. We are the most powerful country the world has ever known. What we do, it resonates and reverberates through generations in ways that we can't even predict right now. I mean one thing separate from everything else is that Donald Trump has created this tremendous opportunity and opening for China to take over global leadership from us right. economic leadership, political leadership, in some cases moral leadership um that will matter. I don't yet know how it will matter. I don't yet know how it will matter, but that will matter. Um, the wars we start, the nuclear weapons we do or don't launch, what we end up, what ends up happening with North Korea, but also with Iran, where we have are intervening in what appears to be a new Cold War in the Middle East um, in a very, very clumsy way. The damage we can cause is mind-boggling. And we have become so blasé about it. Um, something that I, I don't think I, I have it in the final draft, but some language I had in an earlier draft, is that this isn't just about holding the president accountable for the power he wields it is holding ourselves accountable for the power we wield that if we're if you're an american i'm an american you are part of this we are part of this it is us it is done in our names and i don't think we take that power seriously um and and what it entails of us and what it asks of us we are watching something that is just so evidently off the rails and our apparent just powerlessness in its face is really embarrassing. And and I feel this way very particularly because one criticism I'm going to get from this is going to be a, a, a who's we, Kimosabe sort of response. Because <laughs> a lot of people listening are like, yeah, like, impeach the guy. I'm not, a, I'm not a Trump fan.
3: Do a lot of people call you Kemosabe? All what? the time. They love calling me
2: Kemosabe. Um But I do get a lot of this, I'll I'll sometimes use we, speaking about America, and they'll say, what we? And so one, I do want to say, I believe we are America. We are a body politic. Doesn't mean you agree with what is happening, but it is happening in your name, in my name. But also, there is a really profound cowardice and betrayal of what the country needs on behalf of Republicans in Congress right now. I mean, that is just, in my view, true. And I don't think that we should make that easier or make it less noticeable by buying into it. The fact that Republicans have decided there is no too low, that there is no, like, you need to be this decent and fit and competent and reasonable to ride the presidency, that should not be a reason that we all then say, well, I guess we can't even talk about what is clearly happening here, right? That is a way in which the discourse is set by a party that is at this point acting in an unbelievably craven and cowardly fashion. I do, there is no one no one who believes for one fucking second that if this were a democratic precedent, that every republican in the country, every republican in congress would not be like calling for their head, right? No one believes that, including republicans in congress. So, the fact that impeachment is now protected because we have these partisan protection rackets, which by the way, the founding fathers did not expect, they did not expect we would have parties at all. Um, and so the fact that Presidents would be protected from impeachment by a built-in coalition of their party. That was not anticipated. So it's another way in which a system we actually have is different from what was set up. But the fact that that is what is happening, if it is also allowed to pervert our discourse, if it is also allowed to just rule us out and make it absurd to say what is clearly true, what even, again, Republicans believe is true, because I've, I've talked to them about this. In mm-hmm. private, they are more searing than most liberals I know.
3: That's disappointing. It's not okay. Well, does it surprise you that, I mean, here we are in the nation's capital, and if we were just to roll down Connecticut to Pennsylvania, there aren't mobs in the street also echoing that sentiment that this is not okay? I think that this is a place where I'm a little softer, actually, and and maybe
2: I'm wrong on it. I think it is a lot to ask of people to... Uphold that level of life interrupting activism over very long periods. And you know, sometimes, obviously, it needs to happen. Maybe it should happen. But a-, a functioning political system should not be asking that of people. Now, we are not a functioning <laughs> political system, so fair enough. But people have families, they have work. It's hard to get the day off. I'm not, I think that is hard. I think that we have mechanisms by which this is supposed to work. And to the extent it is not working, um, those mechanisms should be looked at first before we begin blaming the citizenry. But yes, I mean, I think that's something we are learning is that a profound weakness of our political system and a profound vulnerability is our tendency to just get used to things. Mm -hmm. And that's not just true here. Um, It's true everywhere. Uh, It it is the way terrible regimes remain in power. I I think Americans often have this question whether they look to a foreign land and they see a military coup take place. And then, you know, you have some general running the country and running it badly, running it repressively. And they're like, well, why doesn't everybody just rise up? Surely we would rise up. And the answer is people want to go about and live their lives. Right. There is normalcy even in tyranny. I have a friend who who comes from a country who has more of that kind of governmental system and we were talking right after the election. He's like, oh, yeah, now, now you know how we all feel. And and he, sure. I, I remember saying, like, all these Americans are upset, but, but it, it's fine. Like, you just go on about your life. Like, it's fine. This is what everybody else in the world is doing all the time. And I, I think that one thing we have seen here very much is there are many strains of American exceptionalism implicitly. And I think one strain that has been very present is this idea of, of America having kind of political exceptionalism, that we are a more idealistic country, that we demand a higher standard of behavior from our from our leaders, that, that we wouldn't tolerate what other countries tolerate. And I think what we are seeing here is no. At least at this point, we are not that exceptional. We will tolerate terrible things from our leaders. I mean, one thing I, I have written before and I believe, there are ways in which we got lucky with Trump. It is not hard for me to imagine a president— who has Trump's extremism around illiberal, strongman, authoritarian tendencies, Trump's extremism around race and culture war, but is able to, in a calculating way, execute that through policy, execute that through bureaucratic management, hide what he's doing in his public rhetoric. I mean, we see this Construct in-
3: Construct a cogent sentence. Exactly. Maybe. We see this yeah. in
2: Turkey. We see this in Hungary. We, we, right. we see it around the world. And I look at Trump, and one thing that I am thankful for- is his distractibility, his brazenness, his indiscipline, his incompetence, the fact that he can't seem to hold decent relationships with Congress, the fact that he's alienated the intelligence agencies. I mean, you can imagine someone who really put a lot of effort to having a great relationship with the FBI and the CIA, right right who who worked really hard to be really good friends with Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan. Donald Trump has not tried to do that. It is amazing, given how hard he has tried to alienate everybody he can think of <laughs> that he's still in office. But even so, There's a lot of vulnerability here. We will accept a lot, Um, and and I think that is something that should scare us. Uh,
3: The rustiest silver lining I've ever heard. I'm
2: not calling it a silver lining. (laughs) I know, I know, I know. I do get that. It's a question I hear a lot, where people say, "Well, you know, isn't this better than you thought?" And and it is. Um, It's better than I feared sometimes, Uh, but it's better
3: in terms of when you go back to if
2: you go back to like the fears people had right at the beginning. We've seen, I think, less erosion of democratic institutions, less, you know, Trump effectively going after his enemies with using the, the, the means of the state to persecute them. I th- I, there's some of that, a, a, a bit, but it's not, it's not what people feared. But I don't think it's because, with the exception maybe of the courts and the media— American political institutions have responded with more capability and more strength than we expected. I think actually the American electorate and the American Congress, which are two strongest checks, have responded quite poorly. It's because Trump himself is very incompetent, and you can't trust that everybody who will right. want to 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 be an authoritarian will be an incompetent one.
3: <laughs> the 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 biggest instance of a sort of cohesive movement that I think we've seen since his inauguration was perhaps ironically the day after his inauguration Mm -hmm. when we had the women's march in in washington dc but also across the country and to not leave this conversation on a bleak uh despairing note i thought i would play this clip it felt like if anything that was a moment where people said like this is unacceptable and it turns out that movement now seems to be morphing into one more focused on impeachment so so this was a an ad that they posted, the founders of the uh, Women's March.
1: This holiday season, a new wish tops letters to Santa across the land, impeachment. And just in time, March On's Fight Backpack offers the gift of impeachment where your donation gets you an impeached Christmas sweater or a card hand-delivered to Donald Trump by our caroling chorus for impeachment. This year, instead of fruitcakes and poinsettias, let's flip Congress for the gift of impeachment. March On's Fight Backpack is responsible for the content of this advertising.
3: (laughs) The Fight Backpack. I don't know if that's going to work, but people are trying. that's something.
2: yeah, I don't know if it'll work either. And and I but look, there there is definitely sentiment for this in 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 the country. I'm not saying it's majority sentiment or anything close, but right. but there's sentiment. I will say that one thing that is not in the piece that is a, a real I don't know if I want to say alternative, but but midway step that is important is Congress can do a lot to hamstring the President, not everything, but a lot. Congress could make sure funds cannot be appropriated for certain kinds of first strikes. Congress can make clear that you know launching a first strike of a certain kind would be considered illegal, and that would also give the military more capability to, to say no to doing certain kinds of things. Congress could make sure that the tax returns are seen. It could crack down on corruption. There's all kinds of things Congress could do. Republicans in Congress are not doing that. It doesn't Mm -hmm. mean it's impossible. And so I think that there is, if Democrats won in 2018, I think you would see a lot more accountability, a lot more oversight, and a lot more efforts to to force um, constraint, right? Congress is very powerful. It can constrain the president very powerfully, even short of impeachment. But you need a willing Congress to do that first. It it is a hard thing about writing in this era where there can be a tendency to just excuse Republicans to, to sort of... Decide, well, they're Republicans. Donald Trump is Republican. You can't ask anything of them because they're not going to do it. And I, I think that's a tendency to be resisted. I think we should continue to demand that our political leaders act like political leaders. But, you know, when you hear when, when you hear an ad like that, I, I do think it is true that even short of impeachment, if Congress flips, Donald Trump will have a lot less room in which to act. Not no room, right? And the right. president has a lot of power in foreign affairs and, and so on, but, but a lot less room. I, I do think Sherman is right that. The threat of impeachment is a real thing. And then the threat of impeachment becomes a lot more real. If Congress is democratic. And, you know, and so then you might see an even more constrained Trump. So so there are, there are halfway measures here. But whatever happens in this era with Donald Trump, I think we have seen something that is obvious, um, which is that we can make mistakes in terms of who we make president. And I think we've also seen that we don't really have a language. We are not sure about what we do with that kind of mistake. And 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 here I would say. There's one role in public life Donald Trump has been really good at playing, and that is a guy who believes that in order for institutions to be great, you need to fire poor performers. And that is a lesson we should take from Donald Trump. Um, if, if Donald Trump has taught us anything, it is some people just should be
3: fired. So for those who want more impeachment, Ezra, are there some, some books you can point to? Maybe three, let's say?
2: There are. So a couple good books on this, books that I thought about while, while doing this. One is Charles Black Jr. wrote mm-hmm. a book on impeachment. I think it's just called Impeachment um, in 1978. So one good thing about that book, in addition to it being short, which is just a wonderful quality for, for a book like this, yeah. it's not in this moment, right? It is related to the Nixon moment. Mm-hmm. And so it's very clear. It's considered a classic in this genre, but it, it, it is useful because it is outside of this sort of argument set, Okay. And I found that helpful. I, I found it useful. There's a sort of more modern version of that book. I don't want to, they're not the same because they don't actually have the same um, conclusions. But Cass Sunstein, a, a Harvard law professor who was a regulatory czar for Obama, has written a book called Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide, which also takes a much more historical perspective, really doesn't talk much about Trump, and is a really, really interesting book. Uh, I, I like that one a lot. The other books that helped me think about these questions were books about history <laughs> um, and not really about impeachment there, there's right. a book um, that I read recently by by listening to this podcast actually, which I was excited to find out um, by Jeremy McCArter called Young radicals mm. and it's a really interesting book so it's a book that it takes place in the 1910s roughly and it follows six young radicals basically you know a suffragette, um, some socialists, uh, some humanists, it follows Walter Littman, and you know it's, it's an interesting group of people, right. and they really start that era believing that everything is going to change, right? That, that that we're on the cusp of so much more equality and uh, like a almost like a one world government with a pact against war. And everything just very quickly begins to get worse. And not just worse, but unimaginably worse, right? We go into World War One, and, and it happens, you know, beyond the book's ambit, but, but we're going to go into World War II as well. The Spanish flu happens. And so it, it's a book about the fact that things really can go profoundly wrong. Um, that, that they can go much more wrong than anything we are living through right now. They can go right. wrong with death tolls that are Unbelievably unimaginable. And so one thing I think is important there is just remembering that we should have at least some level of tragic imagination. We should believe that the mistakes of leaders can lead to millions of deaths because they can, because they have. It's not that long ago. So that's one piece of Young Radicals. But the other thing that I think is interesting is that one thing that's just context for that book is that it reads really as a tragedy to me. You have these, you know, very idealistic folks and they just collide head on into Their dreams, for many of them anyway, just being destroyed, right? The the communists in that book will go on to, you know, watch what the Soviet Union actually becomes, or many of them will. The uh, liberals in that book who believe that we'd be seeing an end to war, uh, you know, were excited about what Woodrow Wilson was doing there, are about to see World War I and then World War II, and after that, the Vietnam War. And yet, even amidst all of this death and disaster and and terror, a lot— over the 20th century does get better for the world, for America. Um, That's to take nothing away from the lives lost, from the horrors that we we did see, from the, the dropping of the nuclear weapons. But it is very hard to know if you're living in an era of progress or an era of regression or both, possibly. But I think having a little bit more of that imagination is useful right now. We are living through something extraordinary. And so, you know, we should both consider that Things can be better than they seem, even when they're
3: quite dark, but also things can be worse than they seem Mm -hmm. and act accordingly. Can I recommend a book, too? Just one? Okay, so for those of you who want to know more about Clinton v. Jones, which I think is a super important precedent that isn't being spoken enough about, uh, there's this great compendium of, you know, seminal constitutional law cases that made it up at the Supreme Court called Constitutional Law Stories, and in it, the chapter on Clinton v. Jones. Is just essential. And it was written by a professor of constitutional law named uh, Michael Gerhardt out of Chapel Hill. And it's this incredible story where Scalia in oral arguments is saying, like, this idea that you can't bring civil charges against a sitting president is ludicrous. What? If he can just take a moment from, from playing golf to deal with civil charges, I mean, I think we'll be better off. And the Supreme Court unanimously decided that, like, of course, like these civil charges against President Clinton wouldn't in any way derail his presidency. Of course, he's charged, this case can go forth. And then, of course, they ended up being wrong about that. <laughs> so anyway, it's a great summary of the case and also fascinating to think about in terms of our current political ecosystem. That's
2: great. I'm going to read that. Great. Well, look, Sean, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, Ezra, well, thanks this for was awesome. having me on your show. <laughs> it it, it, it a was pleasure. a real pleasure. Um, And as always, thank you to Jillian Weinberger, our producer. Uh, The Ezra Klein Show is on the Vox Media Podcast Network, and we'll be back with the normal arrangement Mm. of interviewer and interviewee uh, next week.
1: Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets.